It's 2001 in the tiny village of Wimbe, Malawi, and a 14-year-old boy named William Kamkwamba is rooting through the town junkyard. The scrap heap is located right next to the local high school. The same high school the young man was forced to leave when his family ran out of money to pay for his education. With no other way to learn, he started going to the local library to educate himself using the books he found there. And one day I found a book that had the pictures of the windmill on the cover. So when I read inside, they say windmills could pump water and, uh, and uh, generate electricity. The way the pump water attracted my attention. In a drought-ridden part of Malawi, with little access to electricity, a way to irrigate farmers' fields and grow crops outside of the rainy season could be life-changing. But how could a 14-year-old with no technical training build a windmill? That's what leads Kim Kwamba to the junkyard beside his old school. The book didn't say what type of parts you need to use. I had to use my own imagination and I collected most of the parts from the junkyard. So a lot of people, when I was going there to collect pieces, they were laughing at me, thinking that something was wrong with me. Maybe I was going crazy. The idea might have been crazy, but William Kamkwamba isn't. Using scavenged bicycle parts and other odds and ends, he manages to defy the town's expectations. After months of labor, he finished building a homemade, fully functional wind turbine standing 15 feet tall. With the electric charge provided by the turbine's spinning blades, his family now has a source of power. They can pump water, run electric lights and the radio, and even charge their neighbor's mobile phones. It's a remarkable piece of bootstrap engineering born out of desperation during a terrible drought in an impoverished area. But Kamkwamba isn't alone. All across the developing world, inspired trailblazers are finding innovative ways to use technology, new and old. In the age-old struggle against poverty, their ingenuity just might give them an edge. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you're listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast by Dell Technologies. Overcoming poverty is not a gesture of charity. One third of all rural families are left behind in an age of technology and industrial progress. From their crowded, dark little house, they move to a fine new home. Some communities are seeking ways to help the farmers and keep them on the land. Man holds in his mortal hand the power to abolish all forms of human poverty. More than one billion people today live in what's called multidimensional poverty. That's an index that looks not just at income, but at health, education, and living conditions. It's a startling statistic. And if you look at income alone, nearly 700 million people around the world are considered to be living in extreme poverty on less than $1.90 a day. Over the past few decades, 
there's been significant progress improving the conditions of the world's most impoverished populations and the devastating economic consequences of the COVID pandemic are threatening to undo some of that progress. But there is still hope. All over the world, people like William Kamkwamba are innovating in remarkable ways in the fields of agriculture, housing, and even finance. But to understand this struggle, it's useful to understand where the concept of poverty comes from and the role that science and technology has played in helping lift people out of it. And for that, you have to go back to the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was an intellectual movement that began in Europe in the 17th century and led to the scientific revolution. The Enlightenment had this force whereby, you know, people began to think they could make their lives better by themselves or by using the force of reason or by talking to each other and reasoning things out instead of blindly following the church or following the king. Serangus Deaton is a Nobel Prize winning economist and the author of The Great Escape, Health, Wealth, and the Origins of Inequality. And, you know, that eventually spread into scientific endeavor. It spread into technology and it spread into inventions. And eventually, you can think of this as starting the Industrial Revolution or indeed starting health revolutions. It's impossible to separate health from poverty. Longer lifespans, the eradication of devastating diseases and lower rates of infant mortality were key to bringing populations around the world out of poverty. And so was technology. The machine-powered industrial revolution caused European economies to boom, although the trickle-down benefits to workers who powered it took decades. At first, I don't think the Industrial Revolution did very much to improve people's lot. And in fact, many of them, it probably made them worse, you know, because the handloom weavers that used to sit at home in the countryside now moved to places like Manchester to go to the factories. And during that period, it appears that, as far as we can tell, that the capitalists, you know, the manufacturers and so on, really did very well indeed. And so it was only about 1850 that real wages began to rise. And it's only after 1850 that you begin to see the modern improvement in life expectancy begin to start. And thus began what economists call the Great Divergence. Before the Industrial Revolution, poverty was pretty much equalized across the board. You had huge disparities in wealth within countries, but between them, they were more or less the same. Way back when, there wasn't a huge difference between countries. There would have been rich people in poor countries, some completely destitute people, but not huge differences across countries. Um, wages were not very dissimilar in Jakarta from what they were in Antwerp or what they were in London. But after the Industrial Revolution, which sort of started in, in Britain and then spread through Northwest Europe and then eventually to America, you get these countries one after another um, sort of following along and getting rich. And the Great Divergence refers to the fact that some countries are just coming away from the herd and moving out into a much more prosperous and better place. 
And that has been the story of poverty ever since, even as the 20th and 21st centuries have seen enormous progress lifting people out of poverty. So if you were to take the um, narrow definition of material poverty, which is like the World Bank's definition of a dollar a day or now a dollar ninety a day um, per person, then since 1980, there's been this amazing reduction in not only the number of people, but the fractions of people living below that line. Um, something like two billion people have moved away from this abject destitution to something much better. And while science has been a driving force, Sir Angus warns that it's a fallacy to think that developed countries can just swoop in with their technology and fix local poverty issues in developing nations. The idea that you can come from outside with your gadgets and that there's a technocratic solution to these things, the technocratic illusion, the idea that you can just um, move in, use technology. You know, the Soviets tried that, and that didn't work out very well either. But what if those solutions came from people like William Kamkwamba, who are living in the developing world? Kamkwamba's first scrap-powered wind turbine was just the start for him. He used his breakthrough to teach other communities in Malawi how to build their own turbines. It has had great impact to other communities uh, around Malawi. Uh, some are building their own windmills to generate power, but also uh, the mindset of a lot of young people in Malawi has changed now. Uh, instead of doubting themselves that they can't do anything to uplift their lives or to change their situation, they are saying that if William was able to build the windmill that he uh, improved his life, we can also do the same thing. Kamkwamba's windmill project has not just resonated with people in Malawi, it's also inspired people around the world. His TED Talk has nearly 3 million views. He's appeared on The Daily Show. And his New York Times best-selling memoir, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, is now a movie. But Kamkwamba hasn't been content to just rest on his laurels. He's currently raising funds for what he calls the Innovation Center, where young Malawians with innovative ideas can workshop and prototype their designs. At the Innovation Center, we'll have uh, the machine shop that they're going to be able to use on some of their design. Either they're going to be designing tools for agriculture, because Malawi, it's an agricultural country. Almost 80% of the population are farmers, but each and every year we still struggle to feed our population because our farming technique is not very efficient and also not very exciting to young people. But we want to inspire them by designing and coming up with the uh, ideas that they can actually change the farming system. The result, he hopes, will be homegrown solutions to local problems devised by people who have lived with these particular issues. If it's just you are just coming in from outside, completely imposing solution, sometimes those solutions don't work quite well, but if you work together with the community, the people that you are trying to solve the problem with, you can even come up 
with great ideas because the owners of the problem they might actually know what they could do in that type of like situation so i feel that's very important thing to do a 2016 study found that 65% of impoverished adults worked in agriculture in malawi and elsewhere agriculture is one area in particular where new solutions to old problems can be a matter of life or death for some these solutions are being adapted to the one piece of technology most people have access to their phones in 2018 maize fields in india hosted a very unwelcome guest the fall armyworm the fall armyworm is a tiny caterpillar but it has an enormous appetite first appearing in south america it ate its way across the world until it reached india but luckily farmers there weren't completely unprepared in hyderabad the international crops research institute for the semi arid tropics or icrasat is working on a suite of innovative tools for smallholder farmers in india and across the world dealing with problems like the fall armyworm the smallholder farmers have traditionally been challenged in terms of access to knowledge access to information or access to good quality inputs and access to you know markets where they can profitably sell the output that they are growing ram duli pala is a team leader in digital agriculture at Ecrasat. His program looks at how emerging digital technologies can help smallholder farmers access information and cope with invasive pests and climate change. One of their most successful initiatives is their Plantix app. Plantix helps farmers deal with crop diseases and infestations that can wreak havoc and destroy entire harvests. smallholder farmers can download this app for free on their android mobile phones they can open the app and click the picture of a plant or a leaf that looks a little out of shape or a little diseased so to say now once the picture is clicked through the app the app uses uh, deep neural networks uh, in the back end and in a span of about 5 to 10 seconds gives back a message to the farmers identifying the exact pest or a disease or even sometimes a nutrient deficiency that particular plant is experiencing once the app identifies the disease or pest invading a crop it suggests different measures that the farmer can take to eradicate the problem these recommendations include pesticides and chemical sprays as well as organic methods for controlling a particular disease Plantix is now able to identify more than 500 plant ailments. It's available in 8 Indian languages and it's been downloaded by 10 million people around the world. In 2019, it was the most downloaded agricultural app on the Google Play Store. And the data the app provides is a two-way street. In addition to helping farmers combat the fall armyworm, during the 2018 infestation it was able to provide a two-way channel back to local governments who were in desperate need of detailed information about its spread so what was happening is as and when farmers across india were using the mobile app uh, to detect fall armyworm in their particular fields the 
Plantix, the servers that were running the Plantix app were actually sourcing the exact location and the exact time, which I think uh, was incredibly uh, informative and useful for policy makers who really wanted to understand the prevalence and the speed at which this particular fall army worm was progressing in India. As the Plantix app has shown, farmers and other laborers across the developing world are increasingly relying on their mobile phones to connect themselves to a rapidly digitizing world. In some areas, they become a catch-all for all kinds of services, ranging from banking to shopping to healthcare. But that raises all sorts of complications. Luckily, some companies are on the ground to fill the gaps. The payments uh, landscape in Africa is fragmented. Ken Jiroge is the co-founder and CEO of the Kenya-based company Cellulant, one of Africa's leading financial technology companies. With their mobile payment platform, Ting, Cellulant provides a critical access point to financial sector services for millions of Africans across the continent. Nearly two-thirds of the continent's population, about 800 million people, do not have a bank account. Traditional banking systems are difficult to access, and the payment infrastructure across the continent is extremely fragmented. This financial exclusion has a measurable impact on people's lives. That fragmentation was um, impacting people's lives uh, negatively because there was just no access. You know, without payments, you can't pay for an airline ticket uh, to go across borders. And you've got to go out and uh, spend uh, two hours, three hours queuing at a bank to make a payment for a utility bill. Ting is a largely app-based solution to the problem of banking in an economically fragmented continent. Using just their phones, users can send money, pay bills, and even get loans without having a bank account. A virtual credit card service makes online shopping accessible to users who wouldn't otherwise qualify for a physical card. And Cellulant makes it easy for merchants and software developers to hook into their network. There are even physical kiosks in some areas where people with phones but no internet access can take advantage of their services. By basically providing a, a payments platform not only do we provide access to services that people didn't have access to before, uh, but save a lot of time, money, and, and a lot of pain in the, the, just the user experience for, for making payments for everyday services and everyday utilities. Ting has also brought transaction costs down significantly. It used to cost between 5 to $10 to pay a utility bill in Kenya, but Cellulant has reduced that to a dollar or two. That's a huge difference to workers living on a couple of dollars a day. Gaining access to financial systems in developing countries is critical to their economic growth. But connecting millions of Africans across 120 banks wasn't an easy task. It was a job that could only be done with a local perspective. The level of fragmentation across borders and regulatory fragmentation and so on requires intricate building country by country, hand-to-hand combat. So... It just so uh, presented an opportunity that uh, for us as a, an ambitious local company that has very strong context of the problem that would do this. Cellulant is generating a lot of international recognition for its contribution to the financial tech sector in Africa. In fact, 
in 2018, KPMG listed Cellulant on its prestigious FinTech 100 list. It's basically we're building the railway for that will power the Africa's digital economy, right? And to a large extent, you know, Africa's really done well and leapfrogged um, a, a lot of other societies because then, you know, we don't have any legacy infrastructure. We have to build it from scratch and mobile is one of them. But a mobile first perspective only works if the population can actually get online. That's not a given everywhere in the world. And that's where companies like Brick, another Kenya-based company, comes in. It's a company that started out with a question. Why do we keep using technology built for Los Angeles and Tokyo when we don't live in those places, when we live in Nairobi and New Delhi? And why don't we just sit around and look at the reality of what's going on around us and design solutions for ourselves? Nivi Sharma is the chief operations officer of Brick. Brick develops solutions to the problem of internet access in the developing world with the developing world in mind. It starts with custom-made hardware. Brick started as this company that said, what if we took an internet router um, and gave it some batteries so it would work where power is intermittent? And what if we put content storage back up on it as well so it would work even where connectivity is intermittent? And, you know, how would that be more appropriate for African infrastructure realities? Brick wireless routers are built to be rugged to resist dust, humidity, and water infiltration in hot, rainy, and tropical climates. The idea is to provide internet access and the quality of life improvements it can bring to anyone, no matter what the setting. Brick puts its routers where its users are likely to be. That meant installing them in buses, cafes, barbershops, and markets. Users log on with their phones and do some sort of digital work, whether it's taking a survey or watching an ad, in order to underwrite the costs of access. They've got nearly a million users in Kenya and Rwanda, and they're expanding into Central and Southern Africa. And they've already seen the impact that increased Internet access is having on the lives of their users. You know, mother is saying, well, I figured out my son has asthma and these are the things that I've learned from the Internet to help him. Or farmers who are saying, well, you know, these pests have been um, eating my crops and I Googled and I joined forums and I talked to other farmers and now I'm using some natural pesticides to, to help me do that. And we really see this across sectors. We see women selling clothes who, are now, who now know how to use social media to market their stuff. And you know, when we couple digital access with the digital literacy, this will be the next big African leapfrog. Africa will use the internet meaningfully to connect ideas and thoughts and businesses and people for a greater good. Connecting people in the developing world to the internet is a crucial step in the fight against poverty. But on a fundamental level, there's one thing that nearly 1.6 billion people around the world still don't have. Access to adequate housing. If you watch the video on New Story's YouTube channel without any explanation of what you were seeing, you might have a hard time figuring out exactly what was going on. 
In a sunny community in Mexico, a large mechanical device moves back and forth as it extrudes coils of sticky-looking gray paste from a round nozzle about the size of a baseball. But as the video progresses, what the machine is doing comes slowly into focus. Little by little, coil by coil, it's printing a home. New story began when my co-founders and I became aware that there were over 100,000 people who lost their home in the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Alexandria Lofsey is the co-founder and COO at New Story. New Story is a nonprofit that's looking to provide innovative solutions to the global homelessness problem. There were so many families that were in dire need of housing. Um, they had flooding, mud floors. Uh, people were getting sick from the oppressive heat that the plastic tarps trapped in. So we started by simply, you know, building a few homes, knowing that if we were going to grow New Story, uh, we wanted to study other nonprofits and do things differently. That includes, yes, building 3D printed homes. New Story's technology, developed with the Austin-based construction technology company Icon, can print a 500-square-foot, two-bedroom dwelling in less than 24 hours. That paste coming out of the machine's nozzle is a cement blend they call lavacrete. It's lightweight and strong, and their homes can hold up against seismic activity. And more than that, the process is extremely versatile. 3D printing has a ton of promise in addressing uh, speed in construction. And part of the beauty of 3D printing is that it is on site. Uh, when we were researching 3D printing as compared, for example, to prefab and modular off-site construction, getting, let's say, prefab panels to remote areas, mountainous areas, rural areas, um, getting it into, you know, crowded uh, urban settings. Um, and so you can bring this 3D printer on a large truck, uh, bring it on site, uh, and it can kind of go and print an entire street. And while News Story is based in the U.S., they pride themselves on local partnerships, be they in Haiti, El Salvador, Mexico, or elsewhere. They believe that imposing solutions unilaterally from the outside can do more harm than good. We allowed them to really teach us uh, how to, you know, most effectively learn from uh, the populations that we're serving. And so something that we also do that I'm incredibly proud of uh, is we have a, a very in-depth uh, participatory design process for each and every community that we build. So we work with our local nonprofit partners and then we bring our, uh, our families, our future homeowners into the process and they sit with us sometimes for days at a time. We have uh, these sessions where we'll have uh, construction paper and pipe cleaners and we are you know, truly designing uh, the look and feel of the community that's gonna work best for them. Like any major problem in the developing world, homelessness will not be solved with any single app or printing process. We can't rely on technology to solve all the problems of poverty, but it can be a powerful tool. One recent study 
showed that 98.7% of people in developing countries have access to a mobile phone. That means more people have access to mobile phones than they do to electricity or even clean water. Solutions that take advantage of technology while also keeping an all-important local perspective could point to a way forward. Whether it's helping farmers fight infestations or giving people access to financial systems that were previously out of reach, the disruptions of the 21st century have the potential to change billions of lives for the better. But to do that, we have to let the people whose lives will be affected the most lead the way. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. For more information about any of the guests on today's show, please visit DellTechnologies.com slash Trailblazers. Thanks for listening.